Guys, so good to be back today, and uh, just so good to be here. And those of you here for the baptism, just rock on. Way to come out in force, and uh, glad to have you here as part of that. Um, Listen, I want to share something with you today, and it's something, um, it really is, it's near and dear to my heart. It strikes at the the center chord of who I want to be, my hope for what this church will be, what I think a relationship with God looks like, and straight up, guys, what I hope for you as well. Now, I want to start it by showing you a phrase that we throw around here a lot at Fellowship of Faith. It kind of defines us. Make disciples who make disciples. This is what we're about here at FOF. This is what we want to be at the core of who we are. But what I want to talk about today is that word, disciple. Because I say disciple, and 10 bucks says you get like a 60-year-old guy who's balding in a bathrobe wearing sandals in your mind, right? What does it mean when we say make a disciple, be a disciple, and then go and make more disciples? And what I want to do is this. I want to try to pull out of it all the cliché. I want to try to pull out of it all the Christianese and get back to the heart of what this thing called disciple, actually is. Now, those of you who uh, spend time here at FOF, you know this. But those of you who are new, I love looking at the Bible in context. Meaning, how do we take this book and try to understand it through first century eyes? See, what did it mean in Jesus' day when these words were And I have found that this happens in no greater way than with this idea of what a disciple actually is. So I want to start you with a story. And it comes out of the Gospels. You can find it in multiple. I'm going to show you in Matthew. There's this rabbi, and his name is Jesus. And he's just beginning his public ministry and work. And he's up in the northern part of of, of Israel, of of this area of Palestine, by this, this lake called the Sea of Galilee. And here's what it says. It says, as Jesus was walking beside the sea, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me. Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Now going on from there, he saw two other brothers, right? Saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were in a boat with their father Zebedee, and they were preparing their nets. And Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, there's a couple of things in this story that I want to kind of bring to the surface. The first is this. What does Jesus say? Come, follow me. Jesus is out doing his ministry, and he gives these words, come, follow me. Okay, fair enough. What's stranger to me is what happens next. How do these guys respond? You know, Peter and Andrew and James and John, what what, what do they do? At once, they left their nets and followed him. And later, immediately, they left the boat. Like, I've always wondered, were they out to sea, like when this happened? Immediately, they left the boat 
and their father and followed him. So here comes this rabbi, this guy that they never met, right? This guy that they never met, they didn't recognize. He's walking by the sea, and he goes, come follow me. And they leave it once. They, they, they do it immediately. Let me ask you. Some guy knocks on your door that you don't recognize and you never met. And he says, come follow me. Do you leave your home and your family at once? Oh, okay. okay. Is that just weird to me? Is that like the strangest thing? You know, and I've heard this spun in different ways, people trying to make sense of it, getting, getting, getting like all mystical with it. Things like, well, you know, when God calls on your heart, you just, you just can't deny it inside, and, and something just compels you. Well, well oh, I mean, okay, but come on, is it still kind of weird? I, I, I mean, it feels like like evidence of first century zombies or something like that. It's like, I don't know why I'm following, but I just must. I mean, what, what is going on in this story? Why is it that someone like Peter or someone like Andrew or someone like James and John would just drop everything at once and follow this, this rabbi named Jesus? Now, I think if we look at this story back in context, back in its original setting, things start to come to life that just bring it to light in a new way. I'm going to share some stuff with you that, that when I first learned was absolutely revolutionary. Maybe you've heard this before. Maybe you've learned this before. When I first came across this, it changed Everything. It began with this amazing teacher who I respect. His name is Ray Vanderland, who opened the door, and then many others besides, about framing this thing called disciple in the first century world. Now, Jesus did not invent the concept of discipleship. Others had disciples. Discipleship was something practiced in a greater way in Jesus' day. And at its core was a relationship. It was a relationship between a rabbi and his follower. And for the next few minutes, what I'd like to do is just unpack that world a little bit for you today. Now let's start with the rabbis. Rabbis were revered and respected men in Jesus' day. People that just sometimes, dare I say, had a certain celebrity status. They were people that, 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 were, that, were, that were noted for knowing the way of God, having the heart of God, modeling their life after God, and being intimately familiar with God's working in this world. Now, rabbis would be divided somewhat, not, not cleanly, but go with me, into two basic groups or classes. The first were just called like Torah teachers, or as the New Testament might put it, teachers of the law. And these were men who would be assigned to a local synagogue in a village or an area or a region, and would be given the responsibility for, for training and teaching and guiding that group of people in what the way of God was like. Maybe the way to think about them is like, your local pastor or like a high school teacher or average college professor. 
But beyond being known as men of God, they were considered to be masters of Tanakh. Now, I want you to get that, that word on your lips here today. Give me a Tanakh. Okay, have you heard this before? Do you know what this means? Tanakh is what Jews call the Old Testament. Because after all, it's not old to them, right? And it's actually an acronym. It's a combination of three words. Torah, referring to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Navi'im, you hear that n, ta, n, you hear it in there, right? Eyes on the preacher. All right, pretty screen. Eyes on the preacher. All right. <laughs> Navi'im, it means prophets. It's people like Samuel and kings and the prophets of Elijah, but also Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and the like. In Katuvim, you hear the k in there, which is the Hebrew way of just saying like writings, psalms and proverbs and Job and Ecclesiastes, Tanakh, the law, the prophets, the writings, and these teachers of the law were masters of it. What does it mean to be a master of Tanakh? Well, let me give you a little insight into what it means. They knew it by memory. The whole thing. Or, I mean, is that sinking in? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all the way through Micah to Malachi at the end. They knew it by heart. And I'm not talking about the names of the books, okay? <laughs> no, I mean, they knew it by heart. Heart. Guys, this is something that's practiced even to this day. I remember a seminary prof of mine telling me about this time that he was on a plane and he actually happened to be seated next to a rabbi. And, and they got into a discussion of what do you do and he, and he found out that, that he was a Jewish rabbi and the rabbi found out that he was an Old Testament professor. And they started debating like Daniel chapter 7 and how Daniel 7 shows the, the, just the messianic nature of who Christ is. And you know, the, the seminary prof is doing the Christian thing. He's like, well, I think it says somewhere in there something like, and the rabbi just starts spitting it out by heart. These are people who are masters of the book because what they saw in this book was nothing short of the revelation and teaching and way of God himself. Now, within the teachers of the law, there was another group, a more selective group. It was those who were considered to have, and let me give you the word, smicha. Give me smicha. Yeah, you got to hack it up in the back of the throat there. Smicha means authority. Rabbis who were seen to have special authority. Rabbis who, who came out of the pack, who were seen to be so blessed by God, so used by God. People that were such men of God that people would follow them everywhere. It was said that in Jesus' day, going 50 years after and maybe 50 years before, there was only maybe known 10, possibly 12 rabbis of all that existed who had smicha. 
These were rabbis who were seen to have such authority that they became spokesmen for God himself. They were seen as prophetic. Those rabbis who could speak and interpret that which God had to say to a new generation. So how'd you get it? How'd you get this smicha? I mean, it wasn't like you'd go off to school or seminary or get like a certification or, or something like that. Well, the way that you got it, or better put, the way that it was recognized is when two other rabbis who had smicha affirmed it in you. When two other rabbis would look at you and say, yeah, he's got it. Listen to him. It's fascinating. You go to the baptism of Jesus and understand that Jesus is a rabbi. He's called a rabbi by all kinds of people through the Gospels, by, by, by a Pharisee and by Sadducees, by a Roman, by his own disciples, by John's disciples and others. Jewish scholars have looked at the baptism of Jesus and have noted something that Christians often miss. When Jesus is at the water that day, he's being recognized as a rabbi with smicha. You have John, who may have been Jesus' teacher, actually. You have John, a rabbi with smicha, who when Jesus comes into the water, goes, wait a minute, this ain't right. You should be baptizing me, Jesus. John, looking at Jesus, saying, you have got far more authority than me. Okay, that's one. Who's the other? The heavens open up. And the voice of God comes down. And what does he say? This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And for those of you who know the text, what's the next line? Listen to him. Jewish scholars have looked at this story and have said per written record, Jesus is the only rabbi to have received his smicha directly from God himself. Now, these rabbis, these teachers, these masters of Tanakh, these ones viewed to, to, to have authority by God to speak on his behalf, would raise up disciples, people that would follow them. Now, a disciple is something so much more than just a student. There's a phrase that I want to show you here today. Uh, for time's sake, I forgot to put that in. We're going to skip that. And they were called Telmed. All right? Say Telmed. Telmed means disciple. Telmedim is disciples. And I like the word better, and I'll tell you why. Because when I say disciple, those of us who have been, can I say, too Christianized, make it something like student or pupil or learner. Okay, that's part of it, but there's so much more. To be a disciple is not just to learn some things that a rabbi has to teach. A disciple is one who wants to be who his rabbi is. Did you get that? Let me say it again. A disciple is not one who is content to simply learn some things that a rabbi has to teach. A disciple is something more. It's someone who wants to be 
who the rabbi is. I've been told that a phrase even developed, and it was, it was this, to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Okay, now think about the image here today. You're walking along Palestine and your rabbi is traveling from place to place, right? And these aren't paved roads. And wherever he's walking, the dust is kicking up on his shoes that you are so connected, so close, so in tow behind your rabbi when he is journeying that you're covered in the dirt and dust from him, that the filth from his feet is kicking up on to you. You ever drive so close behind a truck that you're getting like sprayed like with the mud? You know what I mean? It's like be so close to your rabbi that he needs mud flaps. And the question I think all of us have to ask here today is how dirty are you with the dust that clings to Jesus? Now, in Jesus' world, there was a process by, when, by which one would go about becoming a disciple, by becoming a, well, Talmud. Now, there's a, a phrase that comes out of the Mishnah, and I absolutely love it. Under the age of six, we do not receive a child as a pupil. But from six upwards, we stuff him with Torah like an ox. That's just like awesome. How'd you do it? Well, from about the age of six to about the age of 12, boys and girls alike would go to a local Torah teacher. And what that Torah teacher or teacher of the law would do is begin to stuff them with the Torah like an ox. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy with the hope that by the time you hit age 12, you would know it by heart. So what is that, like sixth grade? By sixth grade, that you would be so immersed in the way of God that you would know the Torah by heart. Now, all right. Any of us who grew up in like a Lutheran context or maybe a Catholic context, I mean, we know how confirmation programs go, Right? I mean, there's the ideal and there's reality. And the reality is that not many made this cut. Not many made this cut. It's called Beth Sefer. It means house of the scroll or house of the book. Not many made it through Beth Sefer. But for those who did it, those who showed particular aptitude, those who showed particular mastery over these five books they'd be invited into the next phase. It's called this, Beth Midrash. It means like house or place of learning. And what they would proceed to do at Beth Midrash for the next three years until maybe 15 is learn the rest of the Tanakh by memory. So only the best would make it out of Beth's affair, and only the best would be invited into Beth Midrash. But then the best of the best, 
those who seem to master the whole things, those who can make the connections, those who could wrestle through the difficult parts of the text, the best of the best would be invited into the third phase, Beth Talmud. It means like house or place of interpretation. And this is what you would do. For the next 15 years of your life, until about the age of 30, you would follow a rabbi. And if you made it, you'd become one, one yourself. How old was Jesus when he began his ministry? 30. Hmm. For the next 15 years, you would follow a rabbi. But see, here's how it went. It wasn't like you would just like, okay, I'll just like pay tuition and go to your school. What you would do is you would find a rabbi. Maybe he's traveling through your town that day. Maybe you got word. He's, 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 he's miles down the road. Maybe you found out where he kind of headquarters at. And you would do whatever it would take to get there. And you'd follow him. You'd follow him around. He would go here. You'd follow him there. He would go there. You'd follow him there. Ray Vanderland, one of the teachers that began to open this up for me, talks about his experience in modern day. Going to a yeshiva, a, a, a Jewish graduate program, where they practice rabbinic and discipleship formats um, in New York. And talk about how a rabbi would go into the bathroom and this pack of 20 disciples would follow him into the bathroom. Because what if the rabbi prays while he's in the bathroom? We need to know how to pray when we're in the bathroom, right? And by the way, do you know there is actually a rabbinic prayer for when you're in the bathroom? Um, as I'm told, here it is. Blessed are you, Lord of heaven and earth, for giving us holes in our bodies. All right, sounds weird. Wait till one of them doesn't work. And they would follow him, hoping maybe the rabbi will choose me. Maybe the rabbi will think I have what it takes. Maybe the rabbi will be willing to invest in me and dare to risk that I might be able to continue his work, that I could be like him. And so they'd follow, hoping to get noticed, kind of like, the minor league, minor league farm teams, teams, hoping to get called up, right? And you'd go to the rabbi one day. And you'd say something like, can I follow you? Now understand that the rabbi knows what's going on here. He knows the system in place and he might go, okay, you know, I've seen you following me, and I can see that you're someone who loves God. So, recite to me Leviticus. Okay, that's second grade. Well done, recite to me Deuteronomy. Mm, dig a little deeper. The book of Amos structures its prophecy 17 times around a prophecy found in Numbers. Tell me what those prophecies are and how they link into Numbers. 
Should have studied. <laughs> and the rabbi would look at you. And he'd go, I see that you love God. I see that you're devoted to him. But I saw that your father is a carpenter. Go and learn the family trade and be a carpenter who loves God with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind and all his strength. Because I don't think you have what it takes to be a rabbi here today. I've seen that your father's a fisherman. I see that you love God. But go and catch fish. And catch him with all your heart, soul, mind, body, and strength and devotion to God in the process. Because very few had what it would take to ever dream of following a rabbi. Now let's go back to the story. A rabbi named Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee. And this rabbi walks by and he sees this kid named Peter and his brother named Andrew. And what are they doing? Fishing, right? Which should tell you something. They're not following a rabbi. They don't have what it takes. And Jesus looks at him. And he says, come follow me. He's going by and he sees these two kids, James and his brother John, and they're, they're learning the business with dad. That should tell you something. They don't have what it takes. But Jesus looks at them. And he says, come follow me. Are, I mean, are you kidding me? A rabbi walks by? A rabbi with shmikah walks by and says, come, follow me? You leave your nets in a heartbeat? You bet they would. This isn't some kids trying to get out of work. It's not like Zebedee's in the boat going, those kids running off again. <laughs> now, are you kidding me? Zebedee's down at the bar that night, and he's talking to his buddies. He's going, yep, rabbi came to town today. Yeah, you know the one. Saw my kids. Yeah, he saw James. He saw John. You know what he said? Yeah, come follow me. Yeah, guess what? James and John, my kids, they're following a rabbi. You would do anything, and they did everything because there was one who believed in them, who thought they could be who the rabbi was. And Jesus looks at each of you, the has-beens, the not-good-enoughs, the wannabes, the third-string JV, and the greatest rabbi of all time who gets his authority from God himself looks at you, and you know what that rabbi says? Come, follow me. Come, follow me. Come, be like 
me. Because I can show you how to do it. And with the power of God and the presence of his spirit, you can be that. Would you do anything to follow a rabbi like that? See, that's the problem of this whole thing for me. Because the honest God answer on that for me is no. No, I wouldn't. Jesus comes up to me and says, come follow me. And I don't. And I'll tell you why. Because I'm not really sure I want to be like him. I am not consumed by him. You know what I want? I want to be comfortable. I want to be content. I want to be happy. And you dash some prosperity on that and look out, we got the trifecta happening here today, right? And my bet is it's the same for many of you. Otherwise, our lives in this church would look really different. See, what I think we, we really want, at least a lot of us, is about three pounds of Jesus. Go with me on this. We want about three pounds of him. Just enough to feel his presence, but not so much that he becomes burdensome. We want just enough of him there to be in our life, but man, not so much that it might cause us to rupture something. If we go much north of there, reminds me the whole thing that, that like just amazing teaching that that parable, uh, the sower and the seed. Remember, Jesus tells this. He talks about this, this farmer who goes out and he just starts throwing seed indiscriminately, like everywhere. And some's falling on like, like paths and birds are eating it up. And some's falling in like really shallow soil and it kind of takes root, but it kind of gets cooked. You know, it can't take root, you know? And uh, others falls in, in like the soil, but it's like loaded with like weeds and thorns. And Jesus goes to start unpacking what it means, how God's word just kind of goes out indiscriminately. And for some people, like the devil robs it away, and for other people, it's like it takes shallow root, but pressures and persecution in life raise up, and it leads them to just kind of know and walk away. But then there's the people like me. It's a third kind of people. It's where Jesus says this. The one who received the seed that fell among the, uh, the thorns is the man who hears the word. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. That's Dave Gadini right there. How about you? And it forces me to ask, like, what does that mean for someone like me? I've been kind of praying through this and thinking about this, and a few things come to mind. You know, one thing that strikes me is this. No matter who you are, Jesus will meet you exactly where you're at. 
No matter how far you are from God, no matter how much you, you're angry at him or mad at him or, or however cold a, a heart you are towards him, no matter how stubborn you've been with him, no matter how many times you've turned away or denied him, Jesus will come to you and meet you exactly where you're at. And what I've come to find is that when he does, he often does this as well. When he comes, he says these words. Come. Follow me. He'll say it to hundreds, if not thousands, of little choices in your life every day. Come, follow me. And when he does, it is to, fo- it is to come out of a place where you're currently at, where it is comfortable and safe and secure, out into an area that is often uncomfortable, laden with risk and challenge and oftentimes uncertainty. And what I found is this. When we come to that place where Jesus is saying, come follow me, there's a fork in the road and there's no getting around it. There's no detour and no bypass. We got a choice. Follow and obey or go the other way. And each way will have loss. When Jesus says, come follow me, and you follow, it'll cost you something. There will be loss in your life. There will be sacrifice. But likewise, when Jesus says, come follow me, and we turn the other way, there will be loss on that path as well. Loss of opportunity, personal transformation, intimacy with God in a relationship that goes so much deeper than the deceits of this wealth and world and life that we love. I wish I could find a way around this one, guys, but I can't. There'll be loss. But you know what else I found? I found that no matter how many times we go down that one path of turning away, God still stands there, scanning the horizon with his arms wide open, yearning and hoping and waiting for his prodigal children to return welcoming them with open arms and love and grace mercy. You know, I often wondered if those disciples of Jesus, if they ever questioned in their own hearts, like, was this worth it? I got to believe they had to. You know, take Judas out of the equation, the 11 who survived, Ten of them were martyred. And John, the one who wasn't, he got off the hook with exile. Woohoo. I gotta believe the struggles, the persecution, the, the torture, the death. Asking themselves, was this worth it? 
turn away and they could have probably lived long, comfortable lives. Lives filled with a certain degree of contentment. At times experiencing this thing we call happiness. Safely dying in their own beds someday. But they also would have lost, wouldn't they? They would have lost all that Jesus did in them and all that they came to see and experience and know. They would have lost that life transformation of becoming the people that God called them to be. They would have lost that intimacy with Jesus, that hope, that presence of mind, the adventure. I got to think if that rich young ruler who turned away from Jesus that day could do it all over again, he would have given his wealth away in a heartbeat. And you know why? Because what I found is that no matter how difficult following Jesus may be, it pales in comparison to regret. The what could have been moments the facing the loss of what could have been if we just dared to follow when he said, come, follow me. And that's the heart of what discipleship's about. Daring to risk to follow Jesus. And through the process becoming consumed by him. And it's my prayer for you today. It's my prayer that God tills the soil of your heart, especially if that fits the bill, that you stay open, poised, willing to risk, and willing to see what he'll do in your life if you take that little step out when he calls. That's it. Amen.